0: Hey there brave fundraisers, this is Rob Woods and welcome to episode 78 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the podcast for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants ideas and maybe a little dose of inspiration to help you enjoy your job and raise more money, especially during the pandemic. And today is going to be a slightly different show because rather than interview someone else with interesting examples to share, this time it's going to be me telling the stories. I'm gonna share with you part of a talk I did at my quarterly Breakfast Club for Fundraising Leaders back in June 2021, which is now one of the resources in the leadership track of our Brightspot Members Club. And at that Breakfast Club event, I gave a talk about leadership, as inspired by what I found to be one of the most fascinating books I've read in the last decade. The book is called The Captain Class, and it's by a leadership expert named Sam Walker. He studied the most successful captains in the history of professional team sport. And he found some interesting not necessarily obvious things about the way they lead and i've found that these traits are similar to some things i've noticed about very successful leaders who work in fundraising that i've been fortunate to interview we pick up the talk as i start to explain sam's approach
1: so what he did was he was really interested in team sports and what makes the difference when to help a team perform at a very high level so the first thing sam did was look at all data he could find over decades since record keeping began for team sports, all team sports. And he looked through that data for the teams that had won most consistently over a long period of time. And when he did that and he was looking, you know, um, ice hockey and volleyball and not just the sports that, for instance, in the UK, people are deliberately following. Um, And what he found is there were 16 teams that had won even more consistently on a long winning streak than lots of other successful teams that a a sports fan might think of. Um, And, for instance, within that was a a New Zealand all-black rugby team in the 80s that was undefeated for 49 games in a row and playing against some really good opposition consistently, um, as well as winning a World Cup. He's got um, a a Russian... um, uh, ice hockey team the women's women's volleyball team in cuba which across a nine-year period di- won almost every match and won three gold medals uh, at um olympics just just slightly beyond that nine-year period and five or six world championships extraordinarily successful in a context of sports where other people are trying to be really really successful and competitive as well and the bit about the book which i find really interesting is he said, he, 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 as robustly as he possibly could, he analysed, is there anything interesting and different about these most successful teams in the history of sport compared to the next level of successful teams or, or, or all other teams? And he wanted to know, are they better funded? Was it an amazing coach? Was it a particular nationality? Um. It turned out there was no obvious out kind of uh, marker for any of those. But he was fascinated to discover that according to his data, all 16 of the most successful sports teams in the history of sport, they had one thing in common. And that one thing was at the beginning of their huge success, they had a particular captain was appointed leader. And their amazing, extraordinary run of success ended soon after that person left the team. And it led him to ask the question, is it possible that one person who is the leader of a team, in this case, in the context of sport, could have such a disproportionate effect on the success and high performance of that group of people in a more extreme way than most people would have said is possible? And the argument of the book is, yes, it is. Because <laughs> according to this data, that was the only thing that the, the most successful had in common. Um, and then the bit where I get really interested is in is, then he studied as carefully as he possibly could the traits and behaviors of those 16 extraordinarily successful leaders Um, and he came up with a list of seven things that they appear to be different and more extreme at than other quite successful leaders Um, and what's most interesting is lots of the things he discovered are not exactly what many people would think of as a star leader you know if you if you are in a asking in the office what what does great leadership look like if you could what, what what do they do these great leaders Sam Walker's argument is the seven things he noticed in these most successful ones they're not always what you'd expect and that's why I find the the whole thesis so interesting um you can tell I find it interesting I'm going to do my best to bring to life in meaningful terms ways that it might be interesting and useful uh, in the context of um, leadership for uh, charity um part of the way I do that is for 16 years, While I've been training fundraisers and leaders, I've also been really interested in this particular angle of what what makes for success in fundraising leadership. And um, three or four years ago, I I did my own deliberate study, uh, just to be clear, not nearly as robust in data terms as Sam Walker's study. But I did three or four years ago, on behalf of the Commission on the Donor Experience, go out and find 16 leaders who many people who their peers felt to be extremely effective and successful, and I interviewed them and did my best to analyse things they were doing especially well. So uh, it's not a, as robust as the other, but um, to try to bring to life Sam, Sam's ideas, I'm going to take some of the research I've done and interviews I've done in working with fundraising leaders over, over the last 16 years, including, for instance, in that uh, research study I, I did. Um, and so uh, in terms of the... the, the <laughs> first of these ideas um i think many of us because of literature and just because of common sense we have a sense that what really brilliant leaders do one of the things they're able to do is inspire us for instance with an amazing speech so whether you you're talking about uh, Churchillian speeches about we will fight them on the beaches and how you know that the narrative in the, in the in the UK that that was part of the thing that steeled the nation's resolve to hang in there and that's part of what won the war uh, or if you're looking at Shakespeare um Henry V battle of agincourt speech we happy few and that's what part of how he inspired a small band of men to to fight brilliantly and, and win that battle um not everybody, but many people have a sense that an important thing leaders do is, is, you know, they're able to move us with their words. Certainly, if you watch any Hollywood film about, about sport and many other kinds of leadership, that's one of the things they do. There's a rabble rousing speech. And um, uh, the findings of Sam Walker are really strong. Not one of the 16 most successful team sport captains in the history of sport, not one of them did rabble-rousing speeches it just wasn't their style they i mean push come to shove they would they would try but but almost always they just wouldn't give any time or attention to going to the front of the of the room in the in the locker room and doing a speech in just it wasn't how they communicated so um what sam walker found is they had a very different um approach to communication which was regular consistent but low-key practical communication relentlessly checking in with their team um interestingly sometimes with words but sometimes just with a pat on the back or a look or a smile and this was far more obvious than any sign of heroic charismatic speeches and in fundraising i mean i'm not saying if you're good at doing a presentation over zoom to help your team that's a bad thing it can only be a good thing as well but i'm saying if you struggle with that or if it's not your first instinct it really doesn't matter because the these very successful 16 leaders didn't do it at all and um just one of many examples of successful leaders i've had the good fortune to interview over the years, uh, episode 23 of my podcast, when I interviewed Paul McKenzie, this comes across really strongly. This was about, I can't remember, it might've been May or June of 2020. And I was talking to him as a leader of a team because I'd heard that his uh, d- d- his team at DePaul UK were doing amazingly well. Um, and I wanted to, his, his take on how he was doing leadership and solving those many challenges. Um, and his first main point was, Above all, I'm just, I just care. I'm so desperately caring about my team. That's my most important priority. I know I've got to raise money, but the first thing I worry about and the last thing I worry about at night is are my team okay? And what can I possibly do to help them be okay? And then secondly, I said, you know, do you sort of do a, you know, a one-off kind of talk to them or did you do that at any point? He said, no, it's just, I'm checking in as often as I possibly can. And when I can't or when it people might feel like I'm being a bit overkill, if he's worried about it, someone in his team, he's, he would set them up with a buddy in the, in the team so that everyone was checking in regularly to check. So again, not in an over-invasive way, but so that there's this constant flow of communication between members of the team, checking that uh, we're doing okay. We're getting re-inspired by people who are doing, doing well or got something to share. And we are sending the signal to those who are struggling somewhat for whatever reason, that we care and that they're safe and we'll do our utmost to to help them uh, be well and succeed. So that was a parallel I've seen in other leaders as well. Um, And the message is, it's okay if you're not given to speeches, don't feel bad about it. It's one of the least important things in my view. I remembered that um, one of the key uh, leaders in the Um, in the book is called Tim Duncan and he's from a very successful basketball team I think they're called the San Antonio Spurs and um, from the outside none of the journalists or most of the fans like saw him as a a very good leader at all like he was you know fairly surly when the, the journalists talked to him they never saw him string more than six words together when talking to the team but like he would just, when, when it was analysed, his leadership style, he was, it was, he was very regularly checking in with people, but a lot of it was non-verbal. It was literally just a raised eyebrow or a smile to people. And so I would add to this consistent, low-key practical communication, this notion of it being, some of it is non-verbal. Now, I know that's harder on Zoom, and I appreciate that. But um, um, Rupert Day mentioned her example earlier. Hey
0: there, it's Rob, and I want to jump in briefly to explain one thing to help you make sense of my next example which is that earlier in our Breakfast Club event, we held a leaders panel during which one of the panel members, a fantastic fundraiser named Rupa De Amin, had shared an example of something she had done for her team three months earlier. The gist of it is that in March 2021, on the anniversary of the first lockdown, she held a special team meeting over Zoom, and in advance of the meeting she went the extra mile to prepare a way to show how much she appreciated her team's hard work and commitment in that crazy year she explained to our audience that rather than just say how much she appreciated her team through words, she had sent them each a special package containing a fancy cocktail from a fabulous restaurant called Dishoom, which they all opened at the same time in the team meeting. So, back to my main presentation as I talk about this idea.
1: And when I talked to Rupide about this tactic, you know, it's, it's, it's not verbal. I mean, she did explain In in simple, clear words, I just so appreciate how hard you've all worked through difficult times. But can you see how just saying that is one thing, but going the extra mile with what I would call this wow tactic, you know it sends an extra signal to people just how deeply um, Rupert Day cared and was grateful to them. And she mentioned to to me that members of her team for weeks after, she felt an extra energy when they were in Zoom meetings and so on because she'd gone the extra mile to, to show how much she cared about them.
0: Hi, it's Rob, and I wanted to jump in really quickly to let you know about the Bright Spot Members Club, which is where we've published the full recording of this film about how to apply these ideas to leadership of fundraising teams. Rather than have me explain, I thought it would be more useful if you could hear from one of our long standing members, Hannah, who joined in March 2020 and who's found the resources really helpful during the pandemic. In fact, Her small arts charity has had a transformational year and doubled its income in 2020 compared to the year before Covid. Here's what Hannah said about why she's a member of the club.
1: Um, I think this way of learning for me just fits in much better with with my workload. You've got so many different resources online that you can just tap into when you need them. And so many different experts that you've brought to your program that actually, I think I would struggle to be able to persuade my board of trustees to spend hundreds of pounds sending me on a, a three, four day training course when actually there's really good value for money in in your series. And Rob, you bring some really fantastic speakers and professional fundraisers to your series and um, you know some of the sessions may be very short but actually that really suits my style of learning. So I think actually you know I I would say to someone just just give it a go.
0: If you'd like to find out more about how the club works go to brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. For now though back to my keynote speech about the captain class and a second trait that Sam Walker found in every one of these 16 ultra successful
1: captains. Another of them that uh, came across really clearly was this extraordinarily relentlessness, which they showed, which is kind of different to a notion of sort of being laid back and balanced. Um, now balance is a, is a good thing in, in, emotionally, but in terms of how high your standards are in certain areas of your job, what Walker found was a what he called extreme doggedness and relentlessness to pursue the team goal. Um, the bit that really brings it to life for me in the book um, is um, the captain of the Barcelona football team that I think, according to the data, they're the most successful football team or one of the two most successful football teams in in the history of people keeping records. And he was the, the captain of a team between 2008, 2013, in which they won two Champions Leagues, four Spanish uh, domestic uh, championships and lots more. I appreciate some of you may not care about things, but those kinds of things, but I'm just doing my best to show this is a phenomenal level of success at a thing where lots of other people all around the world are busting their gut to to win as well. They utterly dominated. And Puyol was the captain for that extraordinarily successful period. And um, what was he doing? How did he, if we believe it, how did he help his team punch at such a high level and consistently? Um, And the bit in the book that stands out is in various, they conducted various interviews with his teammates. And invariably, when their teammates tells them about what Puyol was like, they would always basically give a variation on this story. They would say, well, um, we were winning 8-0 against a fairly mediocre team and it was the last four minutes of the game and Peol ran from defence the length of the field in order to take the throw in that's just how much he cared he just never let up ever um and, and another really well documented one um was uh, when the the team were were winning five nil uh in a particular match and two of Pio's teammates were celebrating after their fifth goal and again he ran the length of the pitch to stop them celebrating um, a because he felt it was disrespectful but b just as a person determined to win he didn't want to give the opposition any excuse to find an extra motivation to come back at them and this is again in the last 10 minutes now um many i think even sports fans who love love winning want their team to win as well as they can most people would say that's a bit extreme like it's clearly the the game was already won, and this, all of these examples show Puyol wasn't the most naturally talented player, but he just he would was more determined and more relentless than anyone else they knew. And and I'm getting to the punchline in a moment to help you see why this is useful in fundraising leadership. When they um, interviewed him, he said, "Do you know how hard it is in the 85th minute when everyone's exhausted?" Even professional athletes, to have everyone, all 11 of you, still performing at 100% level, that's really hard. In fact, most teams don't manage it. But I like to think our team did achieve that level of effort, and that's why we won. And we tended to have an output greater than the sum of our parts. Um, and um, to cast light on how hard this is to do and why P.O.L.'s method works. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of um, uh, some work by a guy called Max Ringelmann. He is um, was an engineer in France in the twentieth century. And until this time, broadly, the uh, received view belief was view about teamwork was: if you want to create more output from a group of individuals, add more people in, and it won't just be addition of effort. But the output of effort will multiply. More people multiplies effort. Now, if you pause to think about it, does that really make sense? Anyway, Max Ringelmann proved that it doesn't make sense. And the way he did it was with a a study which became quite famous at the time, whereby he would get people doing a tug of war. And he would gradually add more people into the pulling on the rope. And he would measure how much effort they were putting in, therefore how much force was being pulled. And... um, what he found was the more people you add, the lower. Obviously, overall, the, effort, the the output goes up, but per person, the average output goes down. Basically, more more participants, effort per participant goes down. And he found he did it in um, lots of other studies, and it's been replicated in the last twenty or thirty years. Various studies. They do a study where they get you. Um, sounds a bit odd, but they get you shouting as loudly as you can in a room and they measure how loudly you're shouting, and then they see what happens to your effort level when you add more people into the room, and they found the more people you add into that shouty room experiment, effort per person goes down by 20%, depending you know, each each per, extra person added. And he, Ringelman called this phenomenon social loafing. And uh, what various people have found is it's much more common, social looming, loafing is a much more common a thing of you know the human condition than we might initially realize and this is why I think as one of the reasons why someone like Carl Puyol had such an effect on the success of his team because it was so abundantly clear to all of his teammates throughout all of training and all uh, every match that he never lets up never goes be- beyond 100% when there is a person who's doing that and they care about you Um, it sends a signal to you to not socially loaf and just ease off a bit, ease off by 20% when you're exhausted. Um, In fact, scientists have found it as well in the shouty room experiment. If the only antidote to it is if you you pair someone with someone and you tell them that their partner is um, a high effort performer, when you do that, both people perform at a high level rather than drop by 20%. Um, So I think that's a key thing that comes out in the book as to how Peel got everybody becoming greater than the sum of the parts rather than ease off a bit. And in terms of fundraising, there's a wonderful fundraiser called Liz Tate. Um, I think she's now at Great Ormond Street Hospital. But uh, three, four years ago, I interviewed her for this report into great leadership for uh, the Commission on the Donor Experience. Um, And many people suggested I should talk, talk to Liz um, because they considered her to, to be a really good leader. Certainly over the years, when she was then at Battersea Dogs and Cats Home, and over the years when I had trained people from Battersea Dogs and Cat Home, I just got this really strong sense of a, of a, a, a energised, happy, high-performing culture. Certainly their income demonstrated that because um, eight years previously, their income was about $1 million a year, and across that eight years when Liz was the leader... It had grown to 20 million, and I appreciate there's other factors that could have been helping to achieve that growth. But my view is, my experience is, Liz is a very successful leader, and I interviewed her for, for this um, report I was doing about, you know, what does it take? And I asked her, what is really good leadership about? And I'd asked this question to lots of people for this project, and many people would give me a range of responses. they say, well, it's part, it's marrying vision. With strategy and good decision making or look after the team and, you know, above all else, be be available and and make quick decisions. They give a range of answers. When I asked it to Liz, her answer was the, the most emphatic of the 16 people I interviewed. And she said, good leadership is all, almost all of it, in my opinion, is about caring about your people, looking after your people, that, that's most of it to me. Um, other people might disagree, but for me, that's that's the way I've done it. Um, and when I said, okay, uh, and, you know, what, what does that mean to you? How, uh, uh, you, you? It sounds like you care a great deal about your people. Can you bring that to life for me? She's, she gave me an extraordinary answer, which I, I quote word for word in this report I wrote, because um, it's just not a normal thing to say, in my opinion. But it's – anyway, she – she said i said what does that look like she said well i think the point at which i became a somewhat better leader was when i just got this advice from a mentor of mine years ago when i was struggling somewhat and she said that the, the mentor said um do you know what? this? for me there isn't a single person in my team who i wouldn't die in a ditch for so this is strong stuff and i'm not saying that all of you guys should adopt the same thing in fact i'm not I don't think Liz meant it literally. I, I can just can conjecture. But I do think there's something about the strength of the rhetoric there, which was a notch up in Liz's development of a leader, just how much you have to care about your, your team, you know, genuinely so, rather than, you know appearing to 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 do it because again because that might be helpful to to look so and i in my various interviews with liz i have just got a strong sense of just how deeply she cares about the 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 well-being and success of everyone in her team um again when i said okay so what does it look like in practice she said uh well various things but one of the things eight years ago when i started and i you know we're still still learning a lot about my charity she said she um she found it helpful to meet all of the people in her team, including those who weren't her direct reports, at least once a year, and just ask them some questions about what they wanted and how, what kind of culture would you like to see here and how could we make things better? Um, and uh, she said she found it so helpful um, that she kept doing it the next year and the next year. The reason I'm telling you this story is when I interviewed um, Liz uh, three or four years ago, there were now 88 people in the fundraising team at, at uh, Battersea Dogs and Cats Home, and she said she still does that same habit of, of, of a proper meeting with all 88 of them. Um, I, just as, as a, a, a caveat, by the way, I haven't had a chance to um, chat or interview Liz at all in the last year and a half um, during COVID. So I, I don't know if she still has this habit, but my guess is she does. But the reason I'm telling you this is... Um, at the time of this interview, Liz was chair of the convention. She was a trustee of one uh, fairly large organisation, and she was the leader of this. Like she, you would struggle to find a busier person and a more contributing person in our sector. And I was really taken aback that she was still finding time somehow to have these meetings with all eighty-eight people in her in her team and. Uh, For one thing, can you see if you're, you know, kind of fairly new in post or you're, you know, first rung on the hierarchy or you've been, been there for four months and you're an assistant in one of the teams and your fundraising director really wants to meet you and value your opinion on such things. Can you see what signal that sends to everybody about how deeply cared for you are? And the other reason I'm telling it to you now is, is can you see the signals it sends everybody how hard relentlessly Liz is willing to work for the good of helping the team and the culture work? My view is part of the reason why Battersea Dogs and Cats experienced that fabulous growth is there was like Carlos Carlos Pio, the opposite of social loafing because everybody could see this phenomenal high standards and effort that she put in. So, you know, People worked amazingly hard for the cause there. And in my view, some of the interviews came out, and for Liz.
0: Well, I hope you found my exploration of these two leadership traits interesting. To be clear, Sam found seven traits. So if I've whetted your appetite, I really recommend you check out Sam's excellent book, The Captain Class, or at least listen to a podcast in which he brings them to life. I'll put links to these further resources as well as a full transcript of the episode on the podcast section of our website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. And if you're curious to see my full film and some guidance notes about how to do this style of leadership, it's one of many recordings and weekly training sessions available to members of the Bright Spot Members Club. If you're not yet a member and you're curious about how the club works, go to brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. And if you found it helpful, I'd like to ask you a favor, which is to take a moment to share it on so that we can get these ideas out to reach as many charities as possible during this difficult year. Just before I finish, I'd love to hear what you think about the episode. You can easily find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I am at Woods underscore Rob. Thanks so much for listening today. Good luck with your fundraising and your leadership. And I look forward to sharing another Fundraising Bright Spots episode with you very soon.